Hello and welcome to the BNP Paribas Markets 360 podcast. We cover the topics that matter from the global economy to market strategy. Hello, I'm Trevor Allen, Head of Sustainability Research here at Markets 360 for BNP Paribas. And today I have the pleasure to be joined by Jeff Schultz, Chief Senior Economist, Nicola Correra, Emerging Markets Economist, and Sumati Semivoy-Jane, Sustainability Research Analyst. It's Thursday morning here in London on the 4th of January, 2024. Happy New Year. Last time we discussed the rising protection gap for physical climate risk. Water stress and natural hazards are hitting public and private balance sheets more frequently and more harshly, and often the associated economic cost is borne by the most vulnerable. For some countries, existing vulnerabilities, whether it's economic, political, or social, can affect their ability to prevent and respond to such shocks. What's more, governments are facing rising financial costs and limited fiscal space at the moment. This is why in this episode, we want to discuss climate adaptation readiness. We have spent some time developing global sovereign scores and analyzing the potential macro consequences. To kick things off, Let's highlight why the topic is so important and provide some insights on our approach. Sumati, one of the main risks countries face is inflation volatility. Could you tell us a bit more about the relationship between climate change and the level of prices? No problem, Trevor. One of the angles through which climate change is is impacting inflation is via higher and more volatile food prices. Agriculture is highly dependent on clean water resources as well as favorable weather conditions and rich soil. It's thus in the front line from weather disruptions and water stress. So we tend to say it is the most direct link between climate change and inflation volatility really. So now food items compose around 25% of CPI baskets and in EM the share can be much higher. For example, food and beverages alone account for more than 45% of India's CPI basket. So to boost resilience in the agri-sector, a lot of work has yet to be done, such as implementing and monitoring water rights, spending more on infrastructure, encouraging nature-based solutions, subsidizing crop insurance, and enhancing farmers' access to new technologies. Um, so this will add pressure on sovereign balance sheets today, but really it proves essential to prevent and dampen the impact of fiscal shocks tomorrow. Now, beyond agriculture, impact of natural hazards on level of prices can trickle through multiple other sectors of the economy too, uh, either directly or indirectly via disruptions in supply chains and via energy prices. And this really directly, um, clearly affecting other components of uh, the CPI basket as well. That's very interesting. And from what I understand, as you developed these climate adaptation readiness scores, you actually found that South Asia might find it most challenging to adapt to climate change. Could you walk us through why that is? Our scores couple countries' exposures um, to physical climate risks with their capacity to respond and adapt to such risks to assess their relative readiness, if you want. So 
uh, we include economic and political variables on top of the more kind of traditional variables around physical climate risk, food security, um, and health as well. So South Asia, which includes uh, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Nepal, Sri Lanka, and India, score poorly under our ranking methodology all around. Um, but I'd say just uh, as a caveat that the economic score of India is actually higher, and it's an important differentiator for, for the country, providing it with uh, better market access and lower financing costs. Uh, but staying on India, you know, its infrastructure remains poor, in particular with low treatment of wastewater and waste collection. Um, and its agriculture sector consumes around 90%, 9-0 fresh water with a high dependence on monsoons arriving at the right time and in the right quantity. Uh, besides, there's been a 27% increase in dry spells in the past 70 years. So with this level of water stress, um, you know, India is highly dependent on groundwater, but it doesn't really allocate or monitor groundwater reserves. Um, and that leads to overuse in agriculture and depletion. Um, India's crop yields are already low relative to top global cereal producers. So really, this all screams significant need for more adaptation investments. Um, looking now at the rest of APAC, um, Southeast Asia is not out of the woods either. It faces disruption in the hydrological cycle through flooding risk and sea level rise, uh, especially high for Vietnam, Myanmar, Cambodia and Laos, with a high infrastructure gap to close. Um, in Vietnam, for example, the Mekong Delta contributes to a third of the country's agricultural GDP yet faces significant risk linked to, linked to saltwater intrusion. Um, and actually, the Philippines is also heavily exposed to tropical cyclones and tsunamis. Uh, we can then compare um, against current and forecasted economic variables. Um, for example, Indonesia will have the most limited fiscal space in East Asia in the coming five years, uh, according to the latest IMF forecast. Um, despite having poor adaptation readiness scores uh, on our methodology. Thanks for the details, Shumati. It's very, very interesting. What are some of the other regions that are covered by the scores? And could you let us know a bit about the risks that these other regions could be facing as well? Yeah, so, uh, our methodology spans 112 countries, so it has a truly global coverage. Uh, we go from Latin America, where, you know, widely expected to become the world's largest food exporting region, yet facing an unsustainable rate of biodiversity loss and significant disruption to the hydrological cycle, um, all the way to the Middle East and North Africa region. They are heavily reliant on food imports and alternative water sourcing techniques in contrast. Um, and staying on the latter, you know, in the Middle East, uh, given the region's overall wealth and level of responses so far, its overall score remains uh, healthy. Um, Egypt, on the other hand, appears to be the, the weakest link, though, because um, reinforcing some of its pre-existing economic challenges. Uh, looking at Central Asia, it also suffers from limited immunity uh, to global food supply shocks. Uh, Turkey, for example, exports wheat mainly in the processed form, 
um, such as pasta, couscous, etc. Uh, and that remains uh, dependent on Russia and Ukraine for wheat grain imports. Um, and on that similar metric, sub-Saharan Africa is most exposed to food security risk we find. Thank you, Samadhi. That's a great place to drill down a bit further on. So let's stay in sub-Saharan Africa and see if we can provide an example on the funding gap in water infrastructure. Jeff, I believe this is something you've looked into. Would you tell us a bit more about this, please? Yes, indeed, Trevor. Now, while our climate adaptation readiness scores suggest physical climate risks in sub-Saharan Africa are not as prevalent compared to the likes of South Asia, for instance, where the region does rank poorly is on health and food security risks. The former owing to physical exposure to vector-borne diseases, and the latter owing to rising degrees of urbanization and high fertility rates that is placing pressure on already strained infrastructure, all of which our metrics aim to catch up, capture in this report. It is inevitable that faster infrastructure investment will likely be required to help cushion the blow from exogenous shocks, say through physical climate risks on global food supply and pricing, where the region is a net price taker. Data is generally scant in the region, but we've looked a little bit more de in depth into water infrastructure issues in South Africa specifically. Sadly, the data doesn't make for comfortable reading. Water delivery has been marred by aging infrastructure, unstable supply and wasteful expenditure for the last decade. Not only has this impaired service delivery in local government, but it's also prompted some companies to shift production away from poorer rural areas, which already struggle with poor water reticulation infrastructure and move these into urban areas. High water loss to leaks and broken pipes and lack of adequate maintenance have also aggravated water scarcity issues. And this is evident in water supply problems in one of the country's largest and economically important cities, Johannesburg, earlier this year. Now, according to some recent studies conducted by the country's Department of Water and Sanitation, microbiological water quality is now considered of extremely poor quality in around 50% of local government entities surveyed. And this compares with just 10% a decade ago. So the issue is becoming exponentially worse. Recent wastewater management surveys have also shown a clear deterioration over the last decade in operational scores. Of the 850 wastewater systems assessed last year, which cover around 144 municipalities across all nine provinces in South Africa, nearly 40% are considered to be in a critical state right now, requiring urgent redress and intervention. Now, from our perspective, with fast deteriorating infrastructure, lack of new meaningful state-led funding for bulk services because of growing fiscal constraints on the ground, and the growing risk of physical climate risks, we think that water scarcity has the potential to fuel further inflation shocks down the line via the food and agricultural sector, for instance. And this could be made worse through a lack of suitable infrastructure investment. So this, we think, is going to become an important theme over the medium term, not just in a country like South Africa and in the region, in sub-Saharan Africa, but globally. Thank you, Jeff. I think now the question really becomes, are these risks already materializing? Let's shift gears and start talking about emerging markets. Nicolo, how is the current level of food prices comparing to the dynamics observed in previous food shocks? Looking at the level of uh, global food prices around the last four peaks, our calculations show much stickier dynamics than in 2008 and closer to those prevailing in 1996 and 2011. 
Although the current level of food prices relative to the March 2022 peak is similar to that in January 2010 relative to the June 2008 peak, that is 20 months later in both cases, we haven't seen a repeat of the normalization trend that uh, materialized over two decades ago now. We believe the nature of the shock can explain the speed and the shape of price normalization, whereas 2008 was more of a demand shock originating from the global financial crisis, we see the current situation as a supply story, for the most part at least. Starting off with pandemic-related supply chain disruptions and then fueled by the war in Ukraine and El Nino. Now, going forward, uh, Trevor, the the coupling we are seeing between food PPI and CPI uh, might keep consumer prices stickier for a little longer as producers continue to pass on the increased cost of uh, agricultural inputs. Think of uh, fertilizers, for example, uh, which are highly energy dependent. Russia, Ukraine and Belarus have together dominated global fertilizer trade. And as seen last year, uh, risks to fertilizer supply can magnify shocks to grain prices. What's more, well, uncertainty is also found in trading routes. Recall that Russia withdrew from the Black Sea Grain Initiative last July. So as a result, Ukraine's grain exports have limited access by sea to Africa and Asia and are mostly sent by land to accessible countries via the EU solidarity lines. So supply-side pressures on food prices are unlikely to abate anytime soon. Given the war in Ukraine, our base case here remains of a prolonged steelmate and the Israel-Hamas conflict. So all in all, Trevor, food prices are cooling, but they continue to be at the mercy of geopolitics. So then, Nicola, what is the overall inflationary and fiscal outlook for emerging markets? And how could it be affected by this enduring macro uncertainty you spoke about? The outlook for cooling inflation in emerging markets implies uh, softer fiscal revenues. Just when higher taxation and new revenue enhancing policies are politically unpalatable especially in countries with upcoming elections. Now, as markets reassess fiscal sustainability amid higher debt servicing costs, primary balance targets and proposed fiscal rules seem a stretch to achieve for many emerging markets, exerting pressure on risk premia. This could challenge effects resilience, for example, creating local headwinds to monetary easing on top of global ones. Brazil and South Africa are particularly vulnerable on this front, in our view. The combination of uh, constrained finances on one end and measures to protect domestic food security on the other, this makes for a challenging starting point in the event of another wave of food inflation. Emerging Asia has been particularly active in terms of export restrictions. India provides a case in point, having imposed free in August, two of which on rice. Now, these aim to secure domestic supply and limit domestic price increases. But in practice, they can reduce incentives for domestic production. Even more importantly, when major producers of key consumer staples impose trade barriers, the share of food subject to restrictions in countries with high reliance on imports increases, such as Egypt, Turkey, Saudi Arabia. Now, in those countries in particular, supply challenges might trigger socioeconomic tensions. Just think of Egypt's 2017 bread protests, for instance. 
And what else? Well, governments in emerging Asia have committed to limiting the domestic transmission of global food price shocks. Inflation rates over there have been kept relatively low by price stabilization measures such as um, price controls and VAT reductions or exemptions, as well as agricultural subsidies such as working capital lending to domestic food producers. Well, for this reason, Emerging Asia now has limited room for more support, although authorities are rolling back related measures. We argue this is essential to restore some fiscal capacity, as climate physical risks, such as water stress, are likely to add to spending pressures and reinforce debt sustainability issues. This is also essential to avoid driving up medium-term inflationary inertia, which would otherwise call for even tighter for longer monetary policy. And bringing this back to food prices, what we observed in 2022 was that wheat and corn prices, maize, spiked due to the Russian-Ukraine conflict. However, rice prices remained stable until the end of 2022 when they eventually did spike. Returning to you, Samati, could you tell us a little bit about the research and the analysis you did on the rice market and what your main conclusions were? Yes, absolutely. Well, rice was uh, quite insulated because of its production being concentrated in Asia. But this comes with its own risk because, um, you know, rice is much less traded on global markets than um, corn and wheat. Less than 9% of produced rice is actually exported. So given the low volumes, uh, one exporters change in rice yields or export policy, and this can affect import dependent countries quite significantly. Um, in particular, rice accounts for uh, quite a big share of diets in a number of Asian and African countries, much higher than any other regions of the world. And the risks are really highest in Africa as they're most dependent on rice imports from Asia. Uh, rice is so prominent in Benin that, that um, it accounts for 14% of its total imports. Um, in, in Asia, it's only mostly uh, the Philippines and Malaysia that rely on rice imports uh, for a portion of their domestic consumption. And actually, staying on the Philippines example, um, given rice represents close to 9% of its CPI basket, uh, the largest share of any food group. Um, the impact of uh, India's rice export restrictions on overall inflation was quite large. Um, Malaysia, on the other hand, remained less affected uh, due to government intervention, and uh, rice is really only 1.1% of its CPI basket, so you know, almost like nine times less. Um, besides this year with the Nino, some countries had to turn to rice imports to stockpile. Uh, that's um, the the case for Indonesia, which was the which became the third largest rice importer according to the USDA. When usually it produces enough for itself. Um, so looking ahead, uh, rice production really needs to get more sustainable. It is the most water intensive and carbon intensive crop due to it being produced under flooded conditions and releasing large amounts of methane. Um, in India, so the, uh, the largest rice producing states, so Ariana and Punjab, are depleting groundwater at highly unsustainable rates through, um, irrigation. 
Um, and on the opposite side, Vietnam faces saltwater intrusion from uh, coastal flo- floods, equally threatening, really. But solutions exist. One is to move away from rice monocultures to models that combine rice and fish farming, for example, in Vietnam. Another would be to make rice types more resilient, uh, resilient to water stress or in India or to salt in Vietnam. Um, and, you know, looking ahead, producing countries might be forced to reduce some of their rice production or, you know, have less crops in, in, in the span of a year or switch to other crops. Um, if also if adoption of newer tech doesn't roll out fast enough. So this is really key that we see that transition happening as well. Unfortunately, though, it seems inflation, particularly in relation to food production in emerging markets, seems to be a recurring theme. Let's switch regions here. Nicolo, you analyzed the historical impact of El Nino on inflation in Brazil relative to that of Colombia. What were your main conclusions there? Indeed, Trevor. And look, El Nino tends to mean a rainy season in southern Brazil, where most fruit and vegetable production takes place, and a drier one in the north, northeast, and a small part of the Midwest. The northeastern Mato Piba region, in particular, has an increasingly important role in Brazil's corn harvest. Well, drier and more humid than usual weather conditions over there increase the likelihood of more severe droughts. Recent observation from the Climate Prediction Center see a 75 to 85% chance of at least a strong El Nino materializing until January, compared with just 40 to 50% just four months ago. Depending on El Nino's intensity, uh, ranging from uh, weak to strong, the impulse response function to past events shows that it may add between 0.9 and 2.6 percentage points to Brazilian full inflation after six months, with the full effect fading after one year. Of course, other things equal. We then ran the same analysis for Colombia and found that El Nino may add between 1.4 and 3.4 percentage points to Colombia full inflation after one year. Compared with Brazil, therefore, the full effect on full inflation in Colombia materializes later but is one of higher magnitude that does not fade within the two-year horizon we set in our analysis. And finally, it's worth pointing out here that our inflation projections still assume a moderate El Nino event. So we are talking about a temperature rise of 1 to 1.5 degrees Celsius above seasonal average. That would imply average food inflation of 0.4 to 1.1% month-on-month in Q4 in Brazil and Colombia, respectively, in line with the historical behavior of past episodes. Now, the odds of a strong El Nino, however, closer to that of 2015, pose upside risks to our year-end inflation forecasts, not only for 2023, but for 2024 as well. Thank you, Nicolo. And finally, Jeff, what are the midterm risks we should be most focused on? We think it very fair to say that physical climate risks is likely to have a very meaningful impact on the global economic environment over the medium term. Inflation globally is already at very elevated levels. We add to that physical climate risks that are looming large right now via El Nino, and with very limited fiscal room faced by most countries right now to embark on meaningful infrastructure drives, 
we can expect the themes of water stress and natural hazards to start having a more meaningful impact on both public and private balance sheets. In this respect, think about rising term premia. What about global price dynamics? Think sticky for longer inflation. And ultimately, policymaker reaction functions. Think high for longer global interest rates. So this is not something that can easily be measured or adequately priced by financial markets right now, but we think it would be naive to think that we're not quickly moving in this direction. We hope that our Markets360 team's latest deep dive on this important topic provides a useful starting point on how to think about the impact of fiscal climate risks and its direct and indirect effects on the global economy and ultimately asset allocation decisions. It's certainly something that we plan on expanding on over the coming months. Jeff, Nicolo, Sumati, thank you all. I think we can see this all really points to the need to address the large funding gap in adaptation, specifically around sustainable water and biodiversity. You can hear all of our thoughts around the opportunities for directing capital towards new technologies and classical but forgotten farming techniques that provide the tools for both water and biodiversity restoration and resiliency. The links for all of our podcasts can be found in the description. Until next time, we thank you for joining us, and we wish you all a happy, healthy, successful, and sustainable new year. This communication does not constitute research, a recommendation, or any form of advice from BNP Paribas or its affiliates. It does not consider your financial circumstances or objectives, and it may not be suitable for you. It should not be copied or reproduced in whole or in part. 